Revelation. Revelation chapter 3. Um, as uh, Daniel said, my name's Ken Keithley, and um, I do teach at the seminary. My wife is Penny. Many of you know her. She works as a trustee and in the nursery. My son, Matt, and Dina uh, is my daughter-in-law. My son uh, many times is, is running the, uh, uh, the camera in the back, and Dina and Erica are uh, in Turkey even uh, today, and so let's remember them in prayer uh, as they are visiting some of our missionaries. As many of you know, we have been going through the book of Revelation, chapter 1, uh, Roger Locke did just a magnificent job of, it, of introducing the book to us and, and pointing us to Christ. Chapters 2 and 3 are of the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And we've been going through two at a time. Uh, Pastor Larry, the first week, he covered Ephesus and Smyrna. And then last week, he covered uh, Pergamum and Thyatira and did just a wonderful job of presenting to us uh, the seven churches. Well, now we're going to look at churches five and six, Sardis and uh, Philadelphia. Now, in the previous four churches, Jesus typically followed a pattern. Now, he does a little bit different with Smyrna, but for most part, there's this pattern that he follows. Uh, he first gives the good news, and then he gives the bad news. Uh, first, he commends them, and then he reprimands them. Uh, first, he will compliment them, and then he'll rebuke them. Uh, first, he will affirm them, and then he will correct them. Well, now... In these two churches that we look at, Jesus breaks the pattern, and he does so quite in a remarkable way. And you say, what do you mean? Well, Jesus says nothing good to the church at Sardis. And he says nothing bad about the church at Philadelphia. So Sardis and Philadelphia are a study in contrast. They are the yin and yang of churches. They are the polar opposites. We should see them as bookends. They are exemplars of what a church either should be or should not be. And so whatever characterized the church at Philadelphia, let's endeavor to be like that. And whatever made Sardis what they were, let's try not to be like that. And so... Uh, Take a look at Revelation chapter 3. It's quite a lengthy passage that we have here today, so I'm going to read for a little bit and preach for a while, and, and we'll, go, we'll go through the chapter that way. Uh, so let's pray. Father in heaven, what a wonderful gift your church is. And to, to be able to gather together with brothers and sisters who love you, know you, and have experienced your saving touch. Uh, Lord, we just thank you, Father, for the privilege of being gathered together. And we know that you're in our midst. You're, we have perceived your spirit. We have heard uh, the glorious songs of, 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 of Zion. We have been reminded of Christ. And so, Lord, <clears throat> you love all seven churches, even whenever you speak words of reprimand. Lord, let us receive that word. Uh, and so, Lord, work in our hearts in this service, and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. And amen. Amen. Well, <clears throat> I said they were very different. 
They are very different churches, and yet there are certain things in common. So let me just kind of briefly go through the things that are in common and see what we can take away from that. First, they both have angelic messengers, because it starts off by saying, in verse 1, to the church that is in Sardis, or down in verse 7, to the church, or to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. So to the angel at Sardis, to the angel at Philadelphia, what is that all about? You know, who are these angels? Uh, well, the word angel has a fairly generic meaning. The word simply means messenger. So some would understand this to be referring literally to the couriers, the ones who carried the letter to the seven churches. And I guess that's one way one could interpret it. I, I'm not very uh, sold on that. Then there, <clears throat> a second more plausible uh, understanding would be that this would be referring to the teaching pastors. Because if you'll notice, the letters are addressed directly to them as if they have some type of direct responsibility for how the church is acting and behaving. And so that would be a very reasonable understanding that, you know, if, if the Lord were to write a letter to the angel of the church at North Wake, that would be to Pastor Larry. And so maybe... Maybe that's not, a, that's not uh, an impossible interpretation. The more likely interpretation is, is that so, indeed this is talking about some type of angelic being who has some type of special role with each individual church. So what's the takeaway from this, even if we are not quite sure who these angels are? And it is that Jesus gives each church his special attention. He gives each church his particular love, his unique care, and this is true for North Wake also. And so both have angelic messengers in verses 1 and 7. He says the same thing to all of them, and he says uh, to all seven and to these two. Uh, second, he says, I know your works. In verse 1, he says, I know your works. In verse 8, he says to the church at Philadelphia, I know your works. Well, <clears throat> that's an encouragement for the church at Philadelphia. God can say, and Jesus can say to the church at Philadelphia, I know your works, and that's encouraging. Not so much for Sardis. I mean, it takes a little darker tone whenever he's saying that to them. Same thing with the third thing that he says to both. I am coming. Look down at verse 3. He says, remember then what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you do not uh, uh, wake up, I will come like a thief. And you'll know not what hour. Then again, he says the very same idea down in verse 11, where he says to the church at Philadelphia, I am coming soon. Hold fast. Now, like I said, just like the previous point, this all depends on the situation. When mom says to the kids, your father will be home soon, that's very context dependent. Whether or not that's good news or not. And so that applies here. And then there's a fourth thing that he says to both that I think we really need to catch. Look, he says, to the one who conquers, verse 5. In verse 5, he says, the one who conquers will be clothed in white raiment. Then down at verse 12, he says it to the next church again. He says in verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, what does it mean for a church or a Christian to conquer. Well, John gives us the definition of what he understands conquer to be, and he defines it in very ironic terms. The one who dies is the one who wins. 
Remember in Revelation chapter 12, it says, and they have conquered, how? They have conquered him, the dragon, Lucifer, Satan, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. And so what is it that makes them conquerors? It is that they know Christ in a saving way. They confess him even if it costs their lives. They may be the one dying, but they're the ones winning the battle. And so this is how he defines conquering. And that'll be an important point as we look further into what's here. And so the one who conquers. Then the fourth thing that he says to all, all, both churches is that he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. He says it in verse 6. And then at the end of his message in verse 13. Now, what is going on here? This is the not always to us, but always for us principle being taught very clearly. Much of the Bible is not to you and me. In fact, most of it's not to you and me. It's written to their situation, their time, and their setting. But all of it is for us and intended to minister to us. I mean, there's all kinds of places, like in the book of Exodus, where you have all of these very explicit, detailed instructions to the high priest, how he's supposed to dress, how he's supposed to act, what he's supposed to do when he's in the temple. I'm not even Jewish, much less a Levite. I mean, that's not to me, it's not to you. But you know what? I'm supposed to learn from that, and I'm supposed to receive something from that, and I'm supposed to get the principles that that teaches. And so this is, and, and, and so that is the principle of not always to us, but always for us. Here it is taught to us very explicitly, because how does each letter start? To the church at Sardis, to the church at Philadelphia, it's to them. But everyone who has an ear, you're to learn. And so every one of us can learn from these two letters. Now, the fact that it's written for us does not mean that it can be understood casually, easily, or in a cavalier manner. And that's because Jesus, as he writes to the church, let's face it, he uses quite a bit of mom and dad code. You say, what is mom and dad code? Well... Remember when you were little and you would ride in the back seat of mom and dad's car as they were, you're going down the road and mom and dad are talking in the front seat and you can hear what they're saying, but you don't quite, I mean, at a surface level, you understand what they're saying, but it's years later, whenever you think back to that conversation, you say, oh, so that's what they were talking about. I had no idea. And that's because they were talking in mom and dad code. You know, where they were making sure that they understood everything that's been say, being said. And unless one is in on the code, you may not quite get everything. And that, I mean, when you read these letters here, there's certain things, I can get it, but let's face it, there's certain parts of it that's kind of coded. Why is that? Well, for one thing, our Lord uses the history and geography of each of the church's towns in order to make a point. Uh, and, and so and a good example of this is what's going on at Sardis. Bring up the slide there. Of the, uh, this, these are the ruins of the town of Sardis. Sardis was a fortress town. You could see the remnants of the wall. See the bluffs? Sardis 
had cliffs or bluffs on three sides of the town. You could only come in on one side. It was a citadel. It was a fort. And so they, it was a town that by its very nature had a defensive posture. This is, they, they were by their very nature a place to play it safe. Whereas the church at Philadelphia was at a crossroads. It was at an intersection of, of, of at least three different cultures and regions. And so it was known as the gateway to the east because if one wanted to launch out into to Asia Minor into some type of endeavor, whether it's military or economic or political or cultural or spiritual, this is the place to go. It's the place to have as your launching pad to move forward. And so by the very nature of the cities, one is a place to be safe, play it safe, and the other is a place to be on mission. And he's going to use the very geography to make a point. So what can we say about the church at Sardis? Well, the church at Sardis, that's the I see dead people church. Look at verse 1. To the angel of the church at Sardis write, the, letter, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Oh, how would you enjoy being told by Jesus that you're a church of zombies, that you remind him of the walking dead? That's a tough thing to have said. Well, what we see is from this is that not all things are as they appear. Because he says to them, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're not. And what this lets us know is that only Jesus' evaluation matters. They say you're doing fine. I have a completely different opinion. Well, Jesus, the good news is for the church at Sardis, that he then walks it back just a little bit, his absolute statement, and he says, wait, um, there's still a pulse. Look again at verse 2, where he says, wake up, strengthen what remains. And then he says in verse 3, remember that you received, heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. Then in verse 4, yet you have still a few names in Sardis. And so he says, wait, I, I said you were dead, but I do detect a pulse. When I, many years ago, I read an article written by a fellow who had been afflicted by snow blindness while hiking in the Rocky Mountains in the wintertime. I never really had heard of snow blindness until that time. What, that's what happens sometimes when someone is up in an area where the sun was shining brilliantly on that day. Uh, you know, the, it was a clear blue sky, the sun is shining, and what can happen then, all of that white snow acts as reflectors, and your, the cornea can actually get sunburned, and he was struck with blindness. And so here he is in the Rocky Mountains hiking, and he goes blind. And the story, as he tells how he's stumbling along, trying to find his way, and the sun sets, and so the temperature plummets. It was already cold, and now it's brutally cold. And he goes, tells to the ordeal of, of walking blindly, trying to find sticks and leaves enough to start a fire. And then he talks about how not being able to see, he clears out an area in the snow 
to where you know, he can have the fire. He, he puts the leaves, he puts the sticks, and then he has to take his gloves off to get his matches, and his hands are trembling. He's shivering uncontrollably. And he talks about how not being able to see and what it was like to start a fire blind. And so finally, the fire is started. He's cold, he's lost, he's blind, he's terrified, he's shaking uncontrollably. And yet, he falls asleep. And when he wakes up, he woke up in a state of bliss. He said he never remembered feeling so comfortable in all of his life. You know those cold winter mornings, just how warm and wonderful your bed feels? Where you pull the cover up around your neck and it just feels great. He said it felt like that only more so. He said he just felt just almost euphoric. And then there was this bell in the back of his head going ding, 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 ding. Why are you so comfortable? You shouldn't be this comfortable. And so he said as he wakes up, he still can't see, but he's waking up and he realizes the reason why he's so comfortable is because his body has frozen stiff. His arms, he can't move them. His legs, he can't move them. And now he's left with a brutal, terrible choice. He said the urge to just go back to sleep and just stay in that comfort zone was incredibly strong. But he said, I knew, stay here and I die. And so he said, I had to go through that brutal process of waking up, shaking, moving his torso, and then the excruciating, uncomfortable sensation of the life coming back to his legs and to his feet. And that was the situation, the, the brutal choice that he had, and that is the choice between the lethargy of comfort and the, and the life of discomfort. This is the choice that was facing him. And that's what's going on here. So, what exactly... What exactly is it that Sardis is doing or not doing that's creating the problem? Why would he call them dead? Well, I'm going to say that the problem is not with what they were doing, but what, what they were not doing. You say, what do you mean? Well, you've heard Pastor Larry, those of you who were with us the last couple of weeks. Larry talked about the, the, the heresy in some of the other churches he talked about some of the idolatry. <clears throat> he talked about the immorality. If you'll notice, Jesus doesn't accuse them of any of these things. He doesn't, talk, he doesn't say that they've engaged in the heresy of the Nicolaitans. They're not going after idolatry like those who are following Balaam. Doesn't say anything about them following after the, the prophetess Jezebel and her immorality. None of the things that he accused the other churches and denounced them for, he doesn't say that about them here. Now, I, I know, I know, I know, I know. Uh, you know, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. But still, there's, it's not what they're doing. In fact... They've got a reputation, remember? They're alive. This is one of those kind of churches they don't smoke, they don't drink, they don't go out with girls that do. They're doing all right, they think. It's what they're not doing. And what is it they're not doing? Verse 5, they are not 
confessing Christ. He says in verse 5, to the one who conquers. Remember, what does it mean to conquer? It means to confess Christ. If the one who conquers, I will never blot out his name in the book of life. What will I do? I will confess his name before the Father. That's the point here that he's saying. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew 10, 32 and 33. Whoever will confess me before men, him I also will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. They are in a situation where they are not confessing Christ. They have stopped announcing their faith in Jesus. What's going on here? Well, maybe they're paralyzed by fear. Look at verse 5 again. Because he says, I will not blot your name out. Now, why would he use the kind of language, I will not blot your name out of the book of life? Well, let's remember the situation that the poor church in Sardis and the other churches in Asia Minor are in. The emperor Domitian is demanding that all Rome worship him. Well, no Christian, no true Christian can bow down and worship the emperor. There is one group that has an exemption from emperor worship, and that's the Jews. Uh, The Roman Senate decided making the Jews worship the emperor was not worth the trouble, and so they were exempted. Well, you've got to remember, most early Christians were Jewish converts. And so as long as they were in the synagogue, as long as they were understood to be a sect of Judaism, as long as they were understood to be a subset of Judaism, they enjoyed that exemption. <clears throat> but if the synagogue kicked them out, which is what's going on over and over, that's why they're being referred to as, as the synagogue of Satan. They're, if they kick them out, then the protection is gone and their lives would be in danger, and that's exactly what the Jews wanted to have happen. And so What we have going on in Sardis, and here's an important thing to remember, and I'm I'm getting this from James Hamilton. The number number of Jews in Sardis is quite remarkable. In fact, archaeologists, the largest excavation, or the, the largest synagogue to ever be excavated in the Roman Empire was in Sardis. They had a synagogue that would seat thousands. And so, as long as you could think you stay there in the synagogue and hide out in there and maybe, you know, I'm a Jewish Christian, maybe I can be just merely Jewish in here. But then they would hear the 18 benedictions. During this time in Judaism, the rabbis were teaching all of the synagogues to pray thus. And let me just read it to you there. It's coming up. May the Nazarenes, that is followers of Jesus, suddenly perish and may they be blotted out of the book of life and not enrolled among the righteous so here they are in a situation where outside it's dangerous inside it turns out to be just as dangerous what is the natural impulse when such a situation it is to hunker down it is to play it safe perhaps it's like the scene the opening scene, the beach scene in Saving Private Ryan. Remember that? That first 20 minutes, pretty hard to watch. Where you have, where the men in the landing beach on D-Day, Tom Hanks plays the role of Captain Miller, and people, they're just being mowed down as they're trying to get off the boats, the Higgins boats. And the few men that managed to, to survive even getting off the boats, they're now hiding behind the iron boat obstacles uh, that, that's in the water. And as they're hiding there, 
Captain Miller, Tom Hanks' character, comes up and says, the seawall, move up to the seawall. And one of the soldiers says, sir, I'm staying. And Captain Miller replies, clear this beach, make way for the others. And the soldier says, this is all we've got between us and the Almighty. Who doesn't sympathize with this young man? I mean, don't you have the same impulse? I mean, <clears throat> bullets are flying by their heads and ricocheting off the iron in front of them. And you're, you know, you're hunkering down and every natural instinct is to stay down. Thinking, maybe they'll run out of bullets, something. And Captain Miller then says... Every inch of this beach has been recited. You stay here, you're dead men. Playing it safe is not safe. Playing it safe is anything but. You must move forward. So was it lethargy or was it fear? Either way, the result is the same. They stopped confessing Christ, stopped confessing Jesus as Lord, and that's the kiss of death for a church. Playing it safe was not an option, and Sardis's history illustrates this. Sardis was known as a citadel, a fortress, a place to be protected, and yet the irony of it is, not just once, but on multiple times, Sardis had been overtaken. And how had it been overtaken? By enemy soldiers climbing up the bluffs that were not protected, and it was said that the soldiers came in like a thief in the night came in like a thief in the night, and the very thing that they thought was going to keep them safe turned out to be a deadly mistake. And so Jesus is saying to the church at Sardis, don't worry about those who are praying to blot out your life. I am the one who has the keys to life and death, and I am the one Lord over death, and I'm telling you, I will not blot your name out of the book of life. Move forward! Move forward. Well, that brings us to the church at Philadelphia. It is the church of the magnificent opportunity. And I'll just go briefly looking at what God has promised this church. It is a church where he says, verse 7, To the angel of the church at Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one will open. First, we see that there is a glorious door, a door that has been opened for them. Basically, that sentence, I have the keys of David, no one can, no, what, what I open, no one can shut, what I shut, no one can open, that is almost a verbatim paraphrase of Isaiah 22, 22. And it is where God gives Eliakim a golden opportunity and tells him to make the best of it. And what is that open door? Well, now throughout the New Testament, we find where that kind of language is talking about the opportunities to confess Christ where he's not been named before. Paul says, a wide, open, uh, effect, uh, a, a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. 
are again in Colossians 4 and verse 3. Pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of the weakness. And so this is a church that has been given, uh, the, uh, the mystery of Christ. Uh, this is a church that's been given a glorious open door. And they do so because they are aware just how weak they are. Look at verse 8. I know your works. And he says, I've set before you an open door no one is able to shut. Because I know that you have but little power. They don't think they're big shots. They are keenly aware of their weakness. But he says, because, not, not just because you're weak, because you're aware of your weakness, and because they continue to confess Christ. Look at verse 8 again. He said, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. In contrast to Sardis. He said, you have continued to confess me. Therefore, I have set before you this open door. Listen to me. <clears throat> this is a magnificent time to be alive. I mean, you think about it. If you could live any time you wanted, when would it be? Well, I think if I could live any time I wanted to, I would love to have lived during the 40 days of Jesus' resurrection ministry. I mean, to have been there with the original group to see the risen Lord, and it says for, for 40 days that he taught them things concerning the kingdom of God. Oh, that's even better than Southeastern Seminary. Just that, you know, to, that, that would have been cool. That would have been cool to see the risen Lord and have him teach us. Okay, but if I can't do that, I'd like to live in 2019. This is a magnificent time to be alive. You say, what do you mean? I mean, I mean it globally. I'm... I'm I'm, I'm now old enough that I, whenever I come to a church, I'm probably one of the oldest people in the church. And, it, and I'm going to tell you, when you get to be my age, I'm going to tell you it's going to, happen, it's going to, be, it's going to feel weird. Just want you to know that. Uh, but I am old enough that I do remember that the situation that we have today was completely different. We, we have a hard time grasping what a unique gift the church in 2019 has been given, not just over the entire history of the church, but over, I mean, the change in the last 50 years. When I was a child going to church, listening to missionaries speak, we didn't have missionaries in Indonesia to speak of, we had some in Vietnam. China had fallen to the communists. Mao was going through the Cultural Revolution. The Soviet Union was strong. They and the Eastern Bloc was behind the Iron Curtain. 60% of the world was under the grip of totalitarian communism. And the talk was the total failure of missions. In fact, Hans Kuhn, very well-known, famous Swiss theologian, gave a famous talk in 1963, almost 60 years ago. And, and I, he was so wrong in this talk that it's hard to exaggerate how wrong he is and praise God for how wrong he is. He's talking about the failure of the church in China. Because at this time, you know, the, the, uh, uh, Mao is busy exterminating the church. And they, at the time, the missionaries were kicked out in 1949. There was only about a million Christians. So they think there's only probably a few thousand left because Mao has been martyring them right and left. And so here's what Hans Kuhn says. 
Mission efforts in Asia are in a state of obvious collapse. In China, the failure is complete. It is slowly dawning on those in the West who are funding mission work that their activities have not led to any satisfactory results, that they have failed. Aren't you glad he's wrong? Because today, not only are there Christians in a country like China, but they think there may be a hundred million of them. And in fact, they are saying that sometime over the next decade, they will become the largest Christian nation in the world. In fact, 40% of the world's Christians by the next decade will be in Africa. The world is open to us. Like I said, my, daughter, my daughter-in-law is in Turkey right now. We have our brother from Indonesia. Now, this doesn't mean that it's easy. This doesn't mean that it's safe. This doesn't mean it's a piece of cake. But folks, a door has been opened to us. What, what would William Carey or Adoniram Judson or, or Lottie Moon think about the opportunities we've been given? They would have said, what an open door. So it is a magnificent open door, not only globally, but locally. You see, I was a student here in the early 1990s. And whenever I came here in the early 1990s, the population of the city of Wake Forest was 5,700. That's according to the census of 1990. They expect when the census is given next year that we'll be somewhere around 50,000. So we've had almost a tenfold growth in 30 years in this town alone. The county of Wake in the same time period has grown by a half a million people. These are people who need to hear about Jesus. These are people who need for us to confess Christ to them. These are people who need, who need us to tell them that Jesus saves, that he's beautiful, that he's glorious, and that he's wonderful. We have been given an open door globally and locally. Folks, the church at Philadelphia is told you got an open door and just remember one of these days things will be turned upside down. Notice what he says in verse 9. He says, Behold, I'm going to make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come down and bow before your feet and they will know that I have loved you. There's a number of Old Testament passages that the Jews of that day love to quote where it talks about how all of the Gentiles of the world will come before the remnant of, 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 of Jews and will pay homage to them. And Jesus is flipping that narrative on its head and says, they're in for a surprise. Actually, it will be my people that everyone will come and acknowledge. And so he says, one day it, things are going to be turned upside down. He said, and I'm going to protect you at the time when it really matters. Look at verse 10. Because he says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who are dwelling on the earth. This is obviously an eschatological promise, promising about the time of the end. Now, when and how is a matter of intense debate. And I, this is not a theology class, and I'm not going to start teaching that this morning. 
I mean, we can talk about a-mill and post-mill and pre-mill. And, uh, uh, you know, there are some who think, uh, take, take a classic premillennial understanding, and they will say what this verse is promising is that the church will be raptured out before the great day of trial. That's one way of interpreting, and that's a classic premillennial dispensational understanding. And then there are others, others in this room, others who are my teaching colleagues, who take a more amillennial understanding, and so know there'll be a general resurrection and we're more or less in the kingdom now. And, and so we have a lot of repartee and, and debate and discussion about that. But we're all still friends. We all still get along about this even as we discuss this. Um, I'm reminded, Pat Zondervan, if you ever have got a book from you know, Zondervan Publishing, Zondervan Books, uh, Pat Zondervan was an amillennialist. He published M.R. DeHaan's book, who, uh, books, who, who was a premillennialist. And they were dear friends. They were dear brothers. And they would pick and tease at each other about their various eschatologies. Pat Zondervan passed away before M.R. DeHaan. But uh, DeHaan was actually buried almost next to him in the same cemetery. And DeHaan mentioned that. He said, uh, he said I'm looking forward to that day whenever the Lord calls us up, you know, and raptures us out. And he said, then I'm going to look over at Pat and say, told you so. And so <clears throat> whichever way it is, whichever way it is, the promise is still the same. We are promised here that we will be protected when it really matters. Why? Because we are going to be given unshakable security. Look at verses 11 through 13. And he says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have that no one can seize your crown, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now that's an odd way of saying it, isn't it? Well, Philadelphia had been destroyed by an earthquake completely leveled earlier that century and they had just fully recovered and they were still a terrible, in a terrible earthquake zone. And so they were used to being in an environment that shakes. What is he getting at? Well, he's getting at this. One of these days... God is going to shake the entire world so that the only thing that's unshaken will be the unshakable kingdom of Jesus Christ. He is promising them security in a very insecure world. So what's the takeaway from these two churches? It is that we must confess Christ. We must tell the world that Jesus is Lord because he is worth it. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear.